0: Food buffs, I'm your host Lillian Yang, and you are listening to Food Nonfiction: The Incredible True Stories Behind Food. This is the story of meat alternatives, the incredible evolution of making meat from plants. It seems like every day there are new options for people to replace meat products with vegetarian products. Of course, in the last episode, we talked about tofurkey And later in this episode, we'll be talking about Impossible Burgers. Meat alternatives are sometimes also called imitation meats, meat analogs, and fake meats. There's a lot of debate around what these products should be called. For example, the meat industry doesn't like the term plant-based meats. Because names are important. Names influence what we think about something. Would you rather buy something called a veggie burger, or the same thing but called a veggie disc. Would you rather buy a vegetarian sausage or a veggie tube? These are real names suggested for labeling meat alternatives. Anyhow, the naming debate has been going on for quite some time now.
1: The word meat alternatives is a is a rather new word. I would say it it started to be widely used in the 1990s. Before that, The same products were often called meat analogues, A-N-A-L-O-G-U-E-S, meat analogues, I guess by people who didn't like them very much because they wanted to choose a name that nobody would understand. But an analog is something that's like something else. And before that, they were called fake meats, fake meats or imitation meats terms that were chosen by people who were not sympathetic with the products. Different names were given to it, as, as vegetarians had a, a larger and larger say in the matter.
0: So, William, can you introduce yourself, please?
1: My name is Bill Shirtliff. I am the founder and director of the Soy Info Center. My life's work has been to introduce foods made from soybeans so that people could become vegetarians and vegans and have a good source of protein.
0: Bill has a fantastic book online called History of Meat Alternatives.
1: And so that's on Google Books. You simply Google Shurtleff Aoyagi History of Meat Alternatives, and the book will come up and you can enjoy reading it, and there's a huge amount of information in
0: it. So let's start from the beginning of the meat imitation story on the worldwide scale first. So what drove the invention of meat imitation products?
1: Buddhism in China. Buddhists, and to a lesser extent Taoists, have been vegetarians by choice. Buddhist uh, restaurants all served vegan food, and Buddhist monasteries today in both Japan and China are vegan because of their belief that we should treat all sentient beings. All sentient beings includes, of course, all animals and birds and fish, Um, with the same respect that we would treat our, our best friends. So the concept of all sentient beings is a very important concept in Buddhism and in the history of meat alternatives.
0: So the history of meat alternatives is tied to Buddhism. In some practices of Buddhism, followers are vegetarians. So when visitors went to the monasteries, the monks would serve them vegetarian food in a form that they could be more familiar with. That meant vegetarian imitations of things like duck, chicken, and fish.
1: So in developing meat alternatives in China, the most innovative way was to make the meat alternatives from Yuba. Y-U-B-A. Yuba is the thin film that forms when soy milk is simmered.
0: Soybeans, vegetables, and wheat gluten were all used by monks in meat imitation. So how have things changed since the early days of making meat alternatives over a thousand years ago? Let's fast forward to the 1800s in America. In the 1800s, we start to see references to meat substitutes such as vegetable sausages and vegetable turkeys. It was in 1850 that the American Vegetarian Society was formed. This was after William Metcalf organized the American Vegetarian Convention that brought together influential speakers such as Sylvester Graham of Graham Cracker fame. Then in 1852, which was a year after Sylvester Graham's death, John Harvey Kellogg was born. Of course, of Kellogg's Corn Flakes fame. This is all important because Kellogg read works by Sylvester Graham and was influenced by his ideas about diet. Like Sylvester Graham, Kellogg believed strongly in a vegetarian diet. So, in 1889, Kellogg started the Sanitas Nut Food Company. This sold meat substitutes that were often made with nuts. The Sanitas Nut Food Company's products, called protos and nuttos, were the first commercial meat substitutes in the West. These were launched in the late 1890s.
1: They made the meat alternatives out of peanuts. They had all of these wonderful meat alternatives that were mostly made out of peanuts and as they were inventing peanut butter they were inventing meat alternatives but they were meat alternatives where you would put peanut butter with a few other things into a can and then steam it once you steamed it steamed it and sealed it you could send it all over the country and so they had a booming business in uh, natos and protos and all of these peanut-based meat alternatives. And since at least probably two-thirds in those days of Seventh-day Adventists were vegetarians, they would order these and carve them up, so to speak, uh, in any form that they wanted to to serve. So instead of having chicken for dinner, they'd have protose.
0: In Dr. Kellogg's 1923 publication titled The Natural Diet of Man, he notes that he created the nut-based meat recipes years ago when a professor named Charles Dabney asked him to experiment in creating a vegetable substitute for meat. Here's a quote from the book. The result of the experiment undertaken was Protos, a nut cereal preparation, which to a considerable degree resembles meat in appearance, taste, and odor, having a slight fiber like potted meat. Earlier experiments made by the writer led to the production of peanut butter, end quote. Fascinating stuff. And if you want to read more from Dr. Kellogg's book, you can view it online at the U.S. National Library of Medicine Digital Collections website. Anyhow, Charles Dabney had been working for the Department of Agriculture when he asked Kellogg to make a meat replacement. Dabney was concerned about meat getting too expensive for the rising population and felt that a vegetable substitute would be the solution. This was during the progressive era of the 1890s to 1920s, a time of activism and reform. This was a time when food purity was under a lot of scrutiny. For example, Upton Sinclair published The Jungle in 1906, describing horrible working conditions in the meat industry, and the Pure Food and Drug Act was passed that same year. And then, The Food and Drug Administration was also formed that year, all in 1906. Let's fast forward again to today, over a hundred years from the launch of the first commercial meat substitutes in the West, and we now have things like Impossible Burgers. No more cans of protose vegetable meat, we now have plant-based burgers that bleed red and sear nicely. I called up the lovely team at Impossible Foods to hear their story. First, I spoke to Sue Clapholtz who is the Vice President of Nutrition and Health at Impossible Foods. Her husband is Pat Brown, the founder of Impossible Foods. So Sue has been there since the beginning. Should I call you Dr. Clapholtz No, oh, no, call me Sue, please. Okay, awesome. So Sue, can you tell me a bit about uh, yourself? I know you have a really interesting background.
2: Sure. My background is in scientific research and medicine. I have a PhD in genetics and a medical degree, and I did a year of residency in psychiatry. I never uh, really imagined I'd be working in the food industry uh, if it weren't for Impossible Foods.
0: Yeah. I would love to hear you know your story of the founding of Impossible Foods.
2: <laughs> okay. Well, let's see. Pat took a sabbatical from Stanford. Our company was founded in 2011, so it was probably a couple years before that. He took a sabbatical and he wanted to work on something that was a great uh, problem facing the world. He decided that climate change was incredibly important to work on. And he, through his research, realized that animal agriculture was, was the major contributor to global warming. So he had the idea that a way to replace animal agriculture with plant-based products was to think about ways to make these products as authentic as possible. As far as the beef project was concerned, in order to make meat, he was thinking he had to come up with a way to make meat that would taste like meat, not just another veggie burger. That the only way to get people who love meat to switch and to have an impact on what was happening to the planet due to animal agriculture would be to have, to target meat eaters with products and, you know, hope that if the products taste as good, we're just as satisfying, we're just as nutritious, we're just as affordable, we're just as versatile, that people would not have a difficult time making the transition. So that was the premise. How could plant-based animal products taste just like the animal products they're
0: replacing? So that's why Impossible Foods was founded. To give meat eaters a plant-based meat that tastes exactly like animal meat, so that there's really no reason to eat meat from animals. Senior flavor scientist Dr. Kleiman is super passionate about the sustainability aspect of plant-based foods. My
3: name is Laura Kleiman, and I'm a principal scientist on the product innovation team at Impossible Foods. Basically, I knew that I wanted to do something related to sustainability ever since the third grade uh, when we studied the rainforest, and I
0: found out that it was being chopped down. And I've sort of always loved science. Laura puts it best when she explains the impact of switching out animal meats For plant-based meats
3: for every pound of impossible meat that you eat instead of the animal meat you will save 30 pounds of greenhouse gas emissions and 290 square feet of land and then the biggest one to me is like 90 gallons of water so every pound of, of cow beef uses 90 gallons of water, which is crazy. So I think the takeaway should be that, that people can really make a huge difference just by making uh, different choices in the food that they eat um, without having to compromise on deliciousness at all.
0: We'll hear more from Laura later. So Pat Brown decided to create the ultimate meat substitute. With that in mind, he set out looking for a substitute for myoglobin that would come from plants. Myoglobin is a heme carrying protein in muscle. He
2: knew that the root nodules of legumes, like soy and clover, had similar proteins that contain a heme molecule and bind oxygen. And so he decided he would start looking for some root nodules and dissect them and see if he could isolate. The heme protein from the root nodules. So he went up to a hill, to a little hill behind where we live, and started pulling up clover and bringing them into the kitchen. And with a pair of tweezers and a a magnifying glass, he was dissecting out the root nodules. And he was able to prove ultimately that it, it was possible to isolate this heme protein from plants. So that was one of the key discoveries he made early on, which I think was helpful in convincing uh, venture capitalists to invest in us because he had something that was unique and very key to
0: creating meat-like flavor. So heme is a key to the flavor of meat, and it's something you can also find in plants. As Dr. Varaden explains, Impossible Foods now uses heme from soy plants.
4: My name is Ranjini, Ranjini Varathan, VP R&D at Impossible Foods. I've been here since 2011. And the plant hemoglobin that we selected after a lot of screening for different types of plant hemoglobins is called soy leg hemoglobin. If you pull up soy plant from the soil, right, and you look at the roots that are tiny Uh, sort of bumps on the roots. They're called nodules. And if you crack one open, you'll see it's pink. And it's pink because it carries heme. So our very early work when I started at Impossible, you know, we used to go up to the field and harvest so many of these soy plants to be able to extract enough leg hemoglobin from the root nodules of the soy plant to do some fundamental characterization around that protein. You know, how does the protein behave? How similar is it to animal hemoglobin or myoglobin? What does it taste like? What what happens if we put it in our product?
2: Yeah, so when the company was first getting started, I think at first Pat thought he could interest another company in taking on this task. But that that route didn't seem like it was going to happen. So instead, he decided he would found his own company. We actually had two companies. I'm not sure if you know this story. We had a cheese company and a meat company. And after about a year, we actually spun off the cheese company into its own business, which is now Kite Hill Cheese. So we work very hard on a lot of
1: things.
0: Wow. was the company called Impossible Foods at the time when you were working on the cheese? So um, the
2: company went through many name changes. First, the company was called Meat 2.0. Then it became Sandhill Foods. Then it was called Meroxi, which is a Costanoan Indian name for word that means leaf. And then it became Impossible Foods. So we, we changed our name many times just uh, just in search of the right name.
0: Yeah, I'm really curious about how everybody works together to create a recipe like this for something completely plant-based to look and smell and taste like meat. So, what was the process? Did you make something look like meat and then add nutrition into it or was nutrition like the start of, you know, the building of the recipe?
2: So, I was I was there at the company, so I I do have a sense of what was going on from the beginning, but I wasn't involved in the design of the first prototype. But I believe that the people who took that on looked at, what what do we want to make? And they decided that for the beef project, that the gold standard would be 80-20 beef. The understanding that I have is that 80-20 beef is the most popular uh, cut of beef in retail. So that would be the gold standard. So they looked at the nutrition, they looked at the structural properties, the sensory characteristics, and learned everything they could learn about what makes beef beef. So
0: they decided they would take a tissue-based approach. So Impossible Foods worked to recreate the different types of tissues found in beef. For example, adipose tissue, so fat, muscle tissue, and connective tissue, and all using plant-based ingredients. Interestingly, Getting the flavor right involved removing flavors that weren't right.
3: So in the early days, my sort of first project was to figure out ways that we could remove some of the off flavors in our product. So because we're using plant-based ingredients, there are some flavors that they have. That might taste still like the plant. And I wanted to be able to identify the actual molecular compounds that were leading to some of those flavors and then develop ways to um, eliminate them.
0: Compared to a burger made with 80 20 beef, which means 80% lean meat and 20% fat, the impossible burger is very nutritionally similar. So I'm gonna compare our product to 80 20
2: beef. And our product has about the same amount of high quality protein and heme iron as beef. It also contains uh, additional non-heme iron, so it has more iron. It's uh, much lower in fat than 80-20 beef, but it has a similar amount of saturated fat. We have no trans fats and no cholesterol, whereas all animal products contain cholesterol.
0: So you mentioned that there's a lot of similarities in the nutrients. Are you adding those in specifically for the nutritional value?
2: Some of them we are. So we add several B vitamins, which are for nutrition. And those are vitamins B2 or riboflavin, B3 or niacin, B6, which is pyridoxine, and B12. And we also add some zinc.
0: Why were these choices made? Are those particularly important vitamins?
2: Yes. Early on, I looked to see what, if there are articles that talk about what is beef. What's good about beef in terms of nutrition? I wanted to make sure that everything that people considered important, we considered, as well as anything that we might consider important just from reading more and going more into depth in the literature about the composition of beef. But definitely certain um, vitamins and minerals stood out and those would be B vitamins, phosphorus, and, and zinc and iron. So we wanted to make sure we matched beef for those. Some of them we match just naturally because the ingredients that we've chosen for our product are rich in those micronutrients. Others we needed to add so that we would have as much as beef.
0: Is there a plan for Impossible Foods to make meats more like superfoods rather than similar in nutritional value to other meats?
2: Yeah, that's a very good question. So we really don't want to make superfoods. The first thing that we do when we're looking at a new product is to make sure that when we design our product, that we match that product for everything that's good and healthy. So we want to make sure as far as nutrition goes, that we match or exceed the nutritional value of that product. And we avoid or eliminate as much of the nutritional negatives. So for example, no cholesterol is something that just by virtue of being plant-based we naturally eliminate and that is considered a health negative. And when we can, we like to provide additional value. And in the case of our current product, I would say fiber, calcium and folate are some of the additional value that we provide that come naturally with our plant-based ingredients. But we also like to look uh, from more of a global health perspective and look at going into areas of the world where people might have particular nutritional deficiencies. And in that case, if we could add something to our product that would help meet those deficiencies and at the same time replace beef or replace fish, whatever we're trying to replace, then that would be something we could do, not to make it a superfood, but to make it a, a more beneficial food. So for example, look at adding vitamin A for products in Southeast Asia where vitamin A deficiency is more common.
0: Mm -hmm. And just to make sure I get it correct, you mentioned you wouldn't describe it as a superfood, but you would want to add nutrition that would benefit parts of the world. Yes. Okay. So I know you mentioned that uh, you foresee Impossible Foods making all different kinds of meat. Um, have you sort of started on looking into things like fish?
2: We um, we have looked into all sorts of products: like chicken, fish, eggs, milk, all sorts of things uh, in terms of creating basic prototypes and starting to think about uh, how we'd go about it. But fish is something that's kind of been on the back burner. I don't think we've we've done too much
0: there. So, what are the factors that help you decide on what products are important to? work on next?
4: I think sustainability and the mission is sort of like our guiding star or north star, if you will. So every decision in the company is guided by that. So ground beef, beef has the, you know, largest environmental impact of all the other animal, you know, in the entire category of animal products. It's the lowest energy conversion efficiency ratio. So that's why we started there.
0: So I know that you're passionate about alternative meats. So I'd love for you to tell our listeners what you think these products mean for the future of the planet.
2: I really wanted to touch on something that isn't just about the uh, effect on climate change and species diversity, which is, of course, super important and our main mission. I really wanted to say something about the fact that we're dealing with this terrible pandemic right now that arose in an animal market. And I think it's very important to consider the number of ways in which animal agriculture contributes to many dire public health threats. And those would include multiple antibiotic resistant bacteria, foodborne illness and pandemics. Because I feel like sometimes we talk a lot about personal health and nutrition and we talk about the health of the planet. But sometimes public health gets lost in the conversation. And right now it's pretty front in everybody's mind because of the COVID-19 pandemic right now. And I think these are things that people don't really pay as much attention to. And I think this is the right time to bring it to people's minds because we're dealing with another pandemic that arose in an animal market.
0: So it's been quite a journey from the start of Meat Alternatives to today. Um, Since we're talking about like this journey of making Impossible Foods, I just want to know what has been the most exciting thing about this whole journey for you so Hmm, far?
2: Wow. Probably one of the most exciting things was when we had our debut in New York City, when we first launched our product at uh, Momofuku Nishi in New York City. This was Impossible Burger version one, and it was this we went to new york and we you know we, there were some events that were that were lovely but it really struck me that this is a reality now that that our dream had come true that something that we had been wanting to do and hoping we could succeed at and had spent i think about 7 years or so working up to that that we actually had a product that was now being sold to people and that just it just was amazing like that this is real that feeling like oh my goodness
0: we've we've done it hey food buffs i hope you enjoyed learning the incredible true story behind meat alternatives One of the quotes that has helped me a lot in my life is remembering that it always seems impossible until it's done. That quote has applied for me about finishing podcast episodes and I guess it also applies for (laughs) recreating meat with plants. So quick update, some of you may have noticed that Fakri wasn't in the episode. You don't have to worry, we're still friends, but I'll be doing the podcast solo from now on. Also, I just finished a draft of my thesis. It's about 140 pages without the references section, so that's pretty crazy. Anyway, I have an idea for the next episode, so hopefully you won't have to wait quite so long till the next one. Alright, thanks food buffs. Bye!